Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck sticks? That one's not particularly nice. What the fuck sticks? Hey, hey, fuck stick. It's not a great thing. What the fuck, topians? I've been doing this for over a decade. Wait, what, like two years? What is this, like 12 years? What is it, like 15? What is it, like 19 years? How long have I been doing this? 45 years? What's happening? Today on the show, Azazel Jacobs. Azza. Azza Jacobs. Uh, he's a director and a screenwriter who made films like Terry with John C. Riley, The Lovers with Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts. And his new movie is French Exit with Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, who actually got a Golden Globe nomination for it. I And I love that movie. The interesting thing about, about Azza is that... Uh, I met him years ago. He was uh, somehow connected to my ex-girlfriend, Sarah. And we talked a bit. I knew he grew up in New York. I knew his parents were artists, but I I did learn about his parents sort of more in depth later, Ken and Flo Jacobs, who were and still are experimental filmmakers. But what we learned in this conversation is that Oz is like firmly sort of steeped in that world. It's a small world and it's an interesting world. And it was a world that had an impact when the entire world was smaller. Before the big Internet, where uh, little pockets of humanity and art could really sort of um, serve an entire community or be special in almost a global way and had a certain a certain traction and integrity, a, a sort of uniqueness. But now it's just blown open, man. I could be an experimental filmmaker. I think I'm going to be an experimental filmmaker. Have you ever made an experimental film? No, but I got a phone. I think I'm going to be a novelist. Have you written anything? No, but I got, I can, I've got a computer. I think I'm going to be a comedian. Have you ever done stand-up? No, but I, I, I watch. You can do it. I just got to get... I have, there's this place near me where if you bring 10 friends, you can be a comedian. And now I'd call myself a comedian because I brought seven friends at this age of fucking entitlement. How are we not all preoccupied with just ourselves? Jesus Christ, man. Some days I'm just full of fear. Other days I'm smoking fish. I'm playing with a kitten. I'm building shelves. I'm still sorting out what was in the old garage. I brought some stuff to be framed. 
I'm getting my house together. I guess I'm planning on staying for a little while. Obviously, this is probably going to be the last house I live in. It's weird to think of that shit. What am I doing it all for? Right? I think I'm starting to appreciate why we do things. Maybe meditation has something to do with that. Maybe it's just age. Maybe it's just a fact that my father does nothing and uh, he has no interest in doing anything and hasn't for years, but he does complain about having nothing to do. He doesn't want to do anything. He's not interested in anything. He's bored and he complains about having nothing to do. I don't want to be that guy. I'm finally putting my office together, but as I was saying, I'm still sorting through the massive amount of stuff that accumulated in the old space. Tchotchkes, bits and pieces of fan art, pictures, books, and I'm trying to make an office in my house. And it's just odd to go through a lifetime's worth of shit. I'm not that nostalgic. I'm really not. But there's a few things, a few key elements from my life that I'm nostalgic about. And they have direct connection to this undertaking, to this podcast. There's a painting I put up on the wall in the house, in the office. of It was a, a fan, a piece of fan art had come to visit the studios when we were doing Air America. When Air America Radio was at the old WLIB studios... There was a door into the studio and there was a little sort of uh, uh, saying that was taped to right next to the doorknob, a, a little kind of a affirmation that was put there before we even got there. WLIB was a African-American station. Some of the people from that station worked on Air America. My partner, Mark Riley, did. But just above the lock on the door, it said, do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. And that was and just beside the door was an on the air sign that lit up. And someone very cleverly, I can't remember the woman's name, I'll have to find it, did a painting of just those two things. And it's a great little painting. And I put that up on the wall in the office and I had been sitting on it for a while. It wasn't up anywhere for a long time, but now it means something. It means the beginning. Me walking through that door was the beginning of me figuring out how to be on this microphone. And then there's another uh, a painting that I've just brought in to be framed by another fan whose name is, uh, I believe it's Dmitry Samaroff. I believe he is a artist and writer. I think he's from Chicago, but I love his art. And he, he somehow from a picture of the inside, the picture of a photograph of the inside of the old garage, he did this painting that almost looks, looks abstract. But if you look at it for a while, you realize it is of the old garage, of the interior of it. And I love it. So that's getting framed. But the point is, on a day-to-day basis, because I don't have children and I don't have, you know, as much of a connection with my parents in in, uh, a kind of... um, detached way where I, 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 I don't, I can't really quite explain it that I don't always know what life is for. I don't always know, you, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing, but because of this year off that we all took, we all took a year off to be, you know, uh, terrified and, um, uh, existentially devastated and financially compromised many people. It was a a great uh, year off for many, and it's ongoing. It's it's we're still in it, but because of that, and because of what I went through over this last year, I've really confronted with the idea of like, 
what is what is life? What is the big payoff? Is it to to stay engaged and keep working? Is it about achieving things? You know, what is it about? I mean, I don't have children to look at and say, look what I did. I guess I have a a body of work that I'm proud of, but I, I'm just trying on a day-to-day basis to have a certain amount of acceptance, but also to like enjoy life a little bit and be okay with that. Or to at least have some sense of what it's for. And then when I'm, I'm doing all this stuff in my house, every day, every action I take that pr- brings me some joy is counteracted with this idea of what fucking difference does it make? It, they, they operate together in me that, uh, you know, I love that who gives a shit. Um, this is amazing, but doesn't matter. God, God, I love doing this, but it, it doesn't mean anything. Now, if I could somehow get rid of that second part, that second voice, that, that, that counterweight to everything, at least for a little while, it'd be nice. I think the meditation's hap- uh, helping. I think the kitten helps. I'm also like, feel like maybe I should be of service more. I think I rationalize that because it seems that this podcast and you know my presence in the world on Instagram, again, for those of you who, who care or who listen to this, I think I'm, I think it's helpful. I, I hear from a lot of people it helps and I'm glad to help, but I think I don't know that I can say like, well, like I'm really doing my part. Am I? Um, I guess, what is the point of this? It's Passover. It's Jew time. You're not supposed to be eating the bread. I don't celebrate any of it. But happy Passover. I don't, maybe my tone isn't good. I, I, I hope you're enjoying family the best you can. I hope that some of you are able to spend time with your family. I hope that uh, you know, you're being as Jewy as you possibly can as a Jew. And those people who don't understand what Passover is or it's not their holiday, uh, once you try being a little Jewy too? I don't know, man. I guess I just want to be at peace with who I am and what's around me, but that it becomes very difficult because some of that requires some engagement, some service, some vigilance, and uh, probably a little bit of righteousness in the sense of, principles but other days i'm just like fuck it man i mean i bought a set of shelves from a company that i know is not good that i know donates money to the wrong place but they had the shelves i wanted they had the shelves i needed they had the exact things i wanted so i'm like is my 200 dollars really going to create the next dictator might help but do my shelves look good? Yeah. Do they hold everything I wanted them to hold? Yep. Did they come out exactly? Are they exactly what you wanted? Yeah, they're making me happy. Well, is that is that too big a price to pay for the next fascist dictator for putting a few bucks towards that? I know these shelves look really good, but you you shouldn't support. I know, I know. I I but I it, but I mean the shelves is like, all right. But just know, you know, when you're being taken away from that house with those shelves, you might have paid for those shoes that guy's wearing, for those boots that he's got at your throat. I know, but the shelves, man, I mean, you know, it's like, 
Right? I mean, I don't know. So, Aza Jacobs. Interesting talk. I find that there's so much art and there's so much music and there's so much I don't know and don't understand and haven't been exposed to. And I think of myself as an open-minded, educated, and uh, exposed guy. But it never stops. You can always put new stuff in to the mind. Uh, Oz's movie, the new movie, is French Exit, starring uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges. It opens in theaters across the country this Friday, April 2nd. I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed talking to Aza. I'm ready for the art. Are you ready for Aza? Here he come. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or need to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts Aza hello Mark how are you buddy good it's nice to see you thanks for doing this you left California I've been you know what happened is about I think about four years ago we had a fire in our place in Highland Park not like a huge fire but a big enough fire that we had to move out of that place and put all of our stuff in storage and then we've been kind of just my wife Diaz and I have been kind of just going to wherever work is and we've been going and especially because my folks are still here and um so I've been going here a lot I'm kind of spending time here and lost in New York City and Los Angeles but then when this whole thing happened, I was just pulling my hair out over there, really. What, so the plague? The plague. Like it wasn't, uh, you, no one got hurt? and No, no, no. It was a dryer fire. So it was uh, it was a real one. Like it was a few fire trucks. I was not there. Dio's was home. Did you she own actually, the house? Like, no, no. Oh, so okay. it was kind of a perfect time for the, you know, for the landlord to get us out because the neighborhood was changing so much and she could sell the home for a lot. So it all kind of worked out, uh, especially for her. And now you're just back in New York. You got your folks house? No, I'm I'm nearby though. So we're at a place, Lower East Side. And and they're still in Lower Manhattan where I grew up. Man, I miss it, man. Now that I think about it, we're living down there in the snow. I lived on second between A and B and- yeah. It's, I can't imagine New York. It's so sad and empty now, right? It's amazing. I mean, it's just com- it's just right up in your face. Every day I walk out, I see another store that's gone, and you just there's like people that did nothing wrong, just um, suffering, suffering. Like in and in places that I remember well and have had history and only contributed to making this city what it what it's been for so long. 
Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's, it's very different than being in Los Angeles where it was easier for me to just kind of avoid. But at the same time, the, the, the life that's still going on, that's persevering, these kind of like, you know, the, the weeds that keep happening and these yeah. little conversations that you hear behind people, like that's happening still on the streets, even through the mask I can hear and all these amazing stories that you just want to kind of keep walking behind somebody and seeing what's going on with their life. Yeah, I mean, I talked to uh, Patty Smith a few months ago, and she's down there, and she posts on Instagram a lot, and it's I, I sort of like I, that feels tapped into me when I see her talking, uh, Patty Smith in her yeah. little house. <laughs> yeah, it's it, and and I go down to my folks, and we walk around the block, and just seeing the city from and that like that neighborhood is exactly pretty much how it was growing up. Now it's that empty again, you know. Like I or was Tribeca? growing up. Yeah, yeah. Before it was called Tribeca, it was just this, uh, you know, place that I could play in the middle of the streets. It was just an empty, empty. There was just the artists there, and it was like industrial lofts, right? It was totally indu- industrial, and also a lot of abandoned, like not abandoned lofts. There, it turns out there were landlords that had these lofts all boarded up, so they're waiting for the market to change, and it never made sense to me. There were so many buildings that were just empty. Yeah, and I didn't really. And I remember my parents explained to me, "Well, they're holding on to it in case the neighborhood goes up." And I didn't make. There was no chance that this neighborhood could go up. You know, it was just a, in your mind. Just yeah, in my mind. But clearly, I know nothing. That wasn't. <laughs> so it was just like it almost felt abandoned down there. Yeah, like it I, was. But how, like what? So like you're. I don't know if you edit your Wikipedia page, but you, there's like not much on there. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I edited completely off. I took it. No, there's nothing. I don't. <laughs> like, how old are you? I'm 48. Okay, so I'm okay. I'm 57. So you go back. You remember the 70s down there? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, especially because that's where all the like other filmmakers and artists were. So I definitely remember the neighborhood kind of going a few blocks to this way, or there was a theater the collective of living cinema that was on white street. Like those were all kind of happening in the, what year were you born? 72. Interesting. So your dad, both your parents are artists. Yeah. My mom was a painter, but she's really been a collaborator with my father. Who's been making films since the late fifties. But it was like, it's, it's a very specific type of lifestyle because it's not, these are not big pictures. No. And that, so the whole audience, their audience was in the neighborhood. I mean, that was it. It was just them. And so the screenings were happening in all those lofts, you know, like you would walk into these places and people had screens set up and they'd have a screening there. And like, the, those are my earliest memories for sure. Just w- watching these films that kind of made sense to me, especially at that age, you know, like when you're four or five, you're not seeing any difference between those films and Superman cartoons. They all kind of feel like movies or, or even bigger films. We romanticize that era of art, you know, in New York and in general, yeah. right? So I guess, what do you think your father was doing, like in terms of film? Like, you know, when you grew old enough to sort of wrap your brain around that this was the nature of his art, but it was clearly not the movies that you would see in a movie theater, you know, who were his contemporaries? What was the movement? Well, I think that it was a matter of survival for him. I think definitely want to hear him talk about the 50s, especially 
uh, and just the kind of dearth of films and what the, how far away the art world seemed. I mean, he was very much grew up poor, working class, and fell into the art. I mean, just seeing art. He, he what he told me is that he was given a, a like a school card to the to Museum of Modern Art as a little kid, and then he oh. would go down there and just to kind of pass time he would wind up seeing these films, these foreign films as a kid, and just that had this huge impression. He would just be there oh. all the time. And so by the time he came out of the Coast Guard, he had an idea of something about, uh, you know, art, but it was really kind of falling, falling through that, kind of learning about um, on his own, and then wind up studying with a, t- a painter named Hans Hoffman that introduced art that was no chance of a commercial life. It was just a really a matter of expressing kind of so much of the despair and so much of the politics that he was feeling. It was a way to communicate in a way, especially to himself. But what wound up happening is this, and again, this is romanticized for me because I was, you know, a little kid. So I'm Mm. now looking back and thinking about this as an amazing time. Yeah. But these it was always the same people at the at the screenings, you know. It was other fellow filmmakers. Like, what are we and talking? Like ten people, twenty? It would no, it, yeah. I think it would be twenty people. Definitely is what I remember. And and homes, it could be somewhere between ten and twenty. Um, and I remember there would be these screenings, and then there would be these conversations that would go on later and later. And then my sister Nisi and I would fall asleep with the other little kids and. At a certain point, these would turn into big shouting matches over films because this was this was the pay at the end of the day, like the conversation, the kind of, right. uh, that's the, that's all there was. There wasn't anything. There was no such thing of like anything more than that. Was anybody writing on the films on that community of people? Yeah. Jonas Mikas was at that time writing for the New York times and he was really put, shining a light. And there was other writers for sure that were doing that and saying that there's something important going on here but it was very, very obviously far away from what Warhol was doing, which was by kind of the closest kind of commercial version of that world. There was a there was an intersection, but the intentions were very, very different and the worlds were very different. Like the, the whole models and drugs and all that stuff could be farther away from what my father and those people i think especially my father was interested in he just was i think seeing that type of money and seeing that type of money wasted was so insulting to him and for him it was really a choice between um doing everything he can to not get a normal job and just survive doing the work that he felt like was essential for him well how did they do that well ultimately to raise my sister and i he became he taught film at SUNY Binghamton and that was kind of an only could have happened he could only have gone hired in the late 60s because he had no college education I mean barely graduated high school so there was like that one sliver in society where you could hire somebody to start a film department Um, and then other than that it was just very very cheap living I mean I can't even tell you how cheap New York City was a totally different thing so the it wasn't how am I going to pay this rent? I mean, rent on our place, I think it was 35 bucks a month when they moved in. Get out of here. Oh yeah. 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 And that's what that whole neighborhood was. It wasn't, you need to walk into these huge places and you never think to yourself like, wow, how much are they paying for this? It was just, that was normal. It was like just above squatting or was it comfortable? (laughs) 
Uh, when my mom met my dad, he had he definitely had no windows, like no <laughs> no windows. I think it was just like plastic, and I mean, there, he she she civilized him to a degree, but that stuff was so uh, unimportant to him, and and not very important to her until I think you know kids start happening, and then you start kind of looking ahead. What kind of paintings did she do? Abstracts or? Yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, my mom um, went to RISD and uh, she started painting abstract paintings while she was there. And the teachers felt like she should be doing much more commercial work. So they called her parents in and they told her, told, uh, told them, listen, if uh, your daughter doesn't start painting more commercial works, we're going to kick her out. And her parents were completely excited by that day idea they just said yes kick her out kick her out because this is they were totally did not want her to do this so they did they kicked her out um and she really just went um if anything went farther into that direction and that's how my parents met too my dad was just painting on the beach in provincetown uh and uh she saw him and i think that the fact that he was supposed to be like selling these paintings were so crazy because nobody would ever <laughs> buy them but she loved them immediately and that's kind of how their romance began uh it's heartbreaking somehow you know it's beautiful but there's something painful about the commitment to oh, art yeah. over commerce and art over there's almost like uh an intention to it that like you know we don't want that kind of attention yeah, definitely. There was a whole side of that, the, the commercial side of it, that was so repulsive and so other and so outside of who they'd want to become and who, who they'd, what they'd want to contribute while they're here. And they've stayed in that? Oh, yeah, yeah. My dad's making, he's 87 now and my mom and they're just, that's what they do. And I would say first and foremost, my dad makes his films for my mom. You know, she's the eyes that he trusts, you know, like that's person says oh yeah there's something there there's something not and does anyone they, else see them at this point they do they do and if anything there's a, probably like a bigger audience in a lot of ways because you know the, the young kids that are finding these and seeing i think kind of maybe it's uh, can jacob yeah can, they are finding them and i've been working with kino on a, like a, a big kind of box set that will come out soon and people oh, really? are finding them and you know, I, I would just say the other thing about these screenings, because it's completely true. Like I, so many screenings as a kid, I just remember the theater being emptied out, like especially if we're going to a, outside of that world. Right. Like a screening yeah. at the MoMA. Right. Just that sound of chairs going flap, flap, flap one after another, you know, and I would just see the place. But there would always be besides the people that already were there and into that work, there'd be one or two people left over at the end of the screening that would go up to my dad and look at him like, oh, I thought I was completely alone until this moment. And I remembered that and that's, that stayed with me, you know? Like that was something that I think when the kind of solitude and the pain of that, which is apparent, like it's definitely not an easy life to choose that's something that always stayed with me. The one guy that really connected. Yeah, that goes up and go, oh, I did not know this was possible. And I saw that over and over. Like, cause I'm, I imagine like growing up with that, like like the, like I, I just saw the title Star Spangled to Death. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I kind of like, all right, I could, 
I can sort of wrap my brain ar- around the the period and what it probably was about, but it was a big epic movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And he spent, and that was one that he actually, I mean, that's one that he started before uh, my sister and I were born and then finished after he retired. So, like he had to start it, f- teach for 30 years, computers had to happen so he could actually finish it very cheaply because he didn't have the money to do How long it. of it? It's so, like, a, was it an epic? Yeah, it's about six and a half hours. And is it's, a, it, it really is, I mean, it's his view of this country and it's the view of definitely where this country is now. I mean, he started it back then, but it completely understood where we're heading. And that's the, I mean, where we are now is something that he's been, and both of them have been talking about since I've been a little kid. Like this has been a clear, this whole this whole insanity has been really clearly where things have been going for my whole lifetime to them. And those are the conversations they had with other filmmakers. And that was, you know, what they were trying to, to show the world or what they were reacting to by being committed to expression over commerce. There's that, but also like, I, I don't think like the art of it was really important. Like, can, is there another way of seeing it? You know, I, I got to study with Stan Brakhage, who's another like very big, Sure. Heavyweight in that world. Where right? did he teach? And in Boulder. So I went up there just for a summer course. He took a to he, just he to teach. You, I mean, you would think like you know, like did Brackage know your old man? He must have. Oh yeah, they were super close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you so, went no, to I, you went and studied with your your dad's pal, the other guy yeah, who makes he movies. He taught this class that was kind of infamous called Sex, Death, and Cinema. Uh-huh. Right? And like I and I was already studying film. It was an amazing. I mean, and the whole thing that I kind of take away from at least what Stan's big objective was, was to go back to that place when you're a kid before you get late, you know, before you're told that grass is green and the sky is blue, like what is happening in the grass? What is actually making up those colors? Like how do we go back before we get so close-minded and just dismiss things, the beautiful, amazing things that are happening. And so the art side of what they were trying to do and how to kind of take things back from not only like a financial place, yeah. but and just an, an internal connection was, I think, just as essential as the politics. I mean, that, that is political, right? Just to be. So that was OK. So th- those were really the two schools you're talking about, because like in Brackage, my experience when I had the experience, when I was open minded enough to understand, you know, what was happening in the legacy of Brackage, where, you know, you're watching a, a, a cinematic experience that could just be, you know, colors. It could just be uh, just poetic, you know, kind of uh, framing of, of things that you can't even identify necessarily. Like there's an experience to watching the way those things flow together that is not... It's not verbal necessarily. It's not narrative certainly, and it's uh, yeah. it, it's something about using the movement of the medium to to express something, uh, you know, primal or poetic. Whereas the other side of uh, art movies, not art movies, but film as art in the purest sense, I guess you know, mm-hmm. would be more of an intellectual exercise. And I would say, if anything, where my father's work has kind of returned much more to painting using his paintings using abstract images 
and learning how to and and showing like depth even with 2D images. So he's the the work is is extremely abstract now. It's not like shooting like in the beginning it was definitely shooting friends doing different things and um actually shooting film but now especially with computers it's been so much about really the bringing paintings to life in the way that he feels them and sees them and so huh. they've connected in that way you know they i did i mean that was the other thing about them like i just the conversations was pretty much every day between them on the phone you know like they would stan would be calling all the time oh really they would talk yeah this was like again like this is the pay is each right, other this, you know? right there's a life the life of an artist because like you know there's nothing more disturbing than the art world really <laughs> in, in terms of of you know the business of art oh, of course you know which i knew nothing about you know yeah. until you know i dated a painter and i was like oh my god this is like obscene i can imagine i, I don't know that world but i know that like with my dad like he, him and my mom started this theater here in the East village called the millennium well it's gone now from there and my dad would sometimes show war warhol's films who's the films he cared about and he'd wind up sitting there he'd be project, he's a project he was projecting them and he he told me about talking to warhol about the whatever film he was showing and that he was so touched that my dad had watched it because everybody that would come to his screenings would stay in the hallway like nobody yeah. would actually sit in the theater yeah was, this was just a party outside in the lobby but nobody would venture in and actually take like respond to the work itself yeah you know and so that was like the closest that he got to that side of things and um by complimenting warhol and showing warhol's movies uh, ju and well ju just seeing how empty what the you know the 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 relationship between that type of audience and right. that work was at least right. at that point so when do you decide that you're going to approach film i mean it seems like you know it was inevitable on some level you were either going to be an artist or or run far from it you know oh, but yeah. it, i mean they gave me this name so that i there was just no chances of going into politics or into a synagogue you know that was like definitely the idea between behind uh, azazel was they 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 were always like you know you could do whatever you want but they kind of immediately <laughs> limited what does azazel mean azazel is a is a fallen angel's name oh. and my parents idea who azazel fell for good reasons because he disobeyed god but it's uh it's you know they have very very strong feelings against religion and i mean the amazing thing with azazel that i didn't fully understand until i got older was like if you meet an israeli and you say that you met an azazel they won't believe it because that just like they say go to hell they say go to azazel all the time like that's their curse word like azazel yeah you try that out and they will say no you never met like they they've it seems impossible that someone would name their child that yeah yeah it's just not like what's <laughs> done and uh actually i had to uh when i was like 20 something i had to go to i went to israel once in my life for uh, like a thing with mtv that i was working on and uh even when i got to the airport they just did not want to let me on the plane they just couldn't get over they looked at the, my passport and they were like this is not your name this can't be <laughs> Um, and they kept calling people over and kept, they, they'd ask me the same question. So 
Azazel's your name. Did you give yourself name, your name? No. Your parents gave you, yes. Your parents are Jewish, yes. Azazel's not your name. But like over and over and over and over and over again. And then I get over there, you know, and like, um, the same thing. I just keep introducing myself and like the kids, lo- you know, the young people like loved it. They thought I was on some death metal thing, yeah, yeah. you know, right, but right, uh, right, right. it was. So it's a demon name. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, they were definitely like, the world is yours. But um, at the same time, um, they gave me this name that I definitely felt like I was art was what I was supposed to be doing. But I thought cartooning was what I, I, th- I really loved underground comic books. Like Spiegelman, who were your guys? Yeah, um, definitely Charles Burns, all, all those people. Oh, that Burns, how loved. great is Burns? The Amazing. best. And, I've been, and Spiegelman was also a student of my father, so I knew. And I knew that he had to know. Your dad had to know Spiegelman. Yeah, so he was. He, he studied with my dad, and they've been very, very, very tight. Um, Is he still for, smoking those camels? He's on e-cigarettes. We're, oh, now okay. Art and I have been writing something. We're now we're collaborating on oh, something. Oh, really? Yeah, we've been working. We've been. Uh, How's he doing? Writing, he's doing good. I mean, he's. I mean, pulling his hair out because of this. What's going on in the world as well? Right. I mean. This is like every nightmare that uh, I think yeah. has been on their mind for years. Um, so everybody's, but he's surviving. He's managing, yeah. and it's been great to 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 work with him so closely. And, what are you working on? Uh, it's definitely it's a TV thing. It's something that we've been developed. We've been developing with Neil Gaiman for a while now. Oh, but Neil Gaiman too. That's interesting. You, Spiegelman, and Neil. Yeah, yeah, and it's wow. been yeah, it's been cool, and it's kind of really kind of talking about when art was a uh, was a threat, when art was still deemed a real threat. It's a documentary series, or it's just no, that's, that's sort be, of the it'll under. Be, it'll be a narrative, but it's really fantastical. It's kind of far out there. It's very, very, um, if yeah, it's it's wild. If we're able to do it, I think it'll be something special. When art was a threat, when do you what do you think was the last piece of art that was a threat? When do you see that at time? What was that time? Oh well, look. I mean, for, for sure, if we think about comic books burnings, and we think about Little Richard, or Little Richard, you know, with yeah. Tutti Frutti, and right. I mean, like, there's they constantly. Uh, I think there's examples throughout right years where we think of like, oh, this is actually something that people don't hadn't figured out how to market yet and right and it ruptured it, the culture and then yeah. it was appropriated exactly this smells like teen spirit situation so you wanted to get into graphic art i don't know i don't know how thoroughly i thought about this but i definitely was a you know i wasn't a good student i, I mean i was uh, like i was actually pretty good i mean I, in, in its own way i was i was a's and f's you know I, was, yeah. I went to high school here in the city and um things that i was interested in like art and history i would do well in well, what what generation are you are you like were the beastie boys your age or are they my age i think they're my age beastie boys were yeah were a bit older i definitely liked them growing up um but who was my generation? I mean, I had this kind of strange experience that I got to, uh, I had, my sister was four years older. And uh, because of that, I was able to get into a lot of punk and stuff quite early. Like I got to, my my first show was going to see The Clash with her in 82. Oh, and wow. that was something that kind of completely changed my life. And that yeah. got me, 
yeah, yeah. Like I came back a completely different kid. You know, I was nine years old and that set my whole path forward. The clash did. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah. We went again, we were out and my dad was teaching that summer out in Boulder with Stan. They were doing like, so Stan had asked him to come out. So we all were out there and we'd go out there for each summer, like between 80, 81, 82. And the clash came through and it was just one of those things, you know, like it was, uh, they yeah. were playing at Red Rocks and, um, Red Rocks. The, and that's already mystical, right? Oh, the whole thing was, yeah. uh, you know, I was, it was where I was in the car with my, with my, my mom and my sister and they're like, okay, so Anisi's going to see the clash. And so tickets were nine bucks. So we're going to give you $9 worth of quarters so you can go to the arcade. And I just kind of threw out this thing, like being a little snotty brother saying, Oh, why can't I go see the clash? And my sister reacted so quickly. and was like, no, 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 no. That I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, you know? <laughs> um, and so my dad had two students, Steve and Julia that were big clash fans. And so they wound up taking me and my sister, they must've been about 20. And we went there the day before and slept out, you know, slept out like waiting and on those steps. And that was like, you know, every, I can remember that so well. I mean, the the first time really smelling weed and just wondering like what that is going on. Yeah, yeah. I remember at some point, like there's a conversation with, we were really, we were the first one. So there was a whole line of people sleeping on these stone stairs at some point like somebody put their hands over my ears and, you know, you just start here, you start really listening. And it was somebody, uh, somebody was offering a blow job to get in earlier. And I was like, a blow job, like, what kind of job is that? You know, like I was trying to figure out what kind of job, I knew it was something that would get somebody in something earlier. Who was offering but, you know, who a blow job? Yeah. It's, I think somebody next to us was offering the security guard. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then I remember like we got in, you know, first thing at nine, 10 AM. And then suddenly you're waiting hours and hours in the sun for this, this concert to start. And so because I had brought all these mad magazines with me, I wound up being kind of like really popular, you know, in the way that I could just pass out and wind up and then kind of getting passed around and um, and just loving it, you know, just seeing this whole other world open up. And then by the time the show started, we were so up close. So, I mean, it, it was it was that sense that I kind of I mean, this is, again, like in retrospect, but obviously like seeing this band come out that looks like an army is so impressive for like a little boy and the Mohawks yeah. and all that shit but also just seeing the love that was coming towards this especially coming from the world that my dad was in was just like oh wow this is this felt just as pure and it was also being loved a thousand times more and it just had such an impression you know some skinhead put me on their shoulder and so I just was about a foot away from strummer uh, why he's saying, and uh, I definitely knew like something really significant happened. And then my parents were like, I came back a, just a different kid. And that became like, that set me. Oh yeah. Yeah. That set me. Like I'm, I'm on an insane level with them to this day. I'm just like, you know, the class drummers and underwear size, you know, like I'm crazy, crazy. How did, how did it change your approach to life? I mean, what was it that changed? First, First and foremost, it's like the energy from the music gave me and has continued to give me some kind of courage in terms of pursuing my own 
path. And then obviously kind of getting so into it, you're hearing these words and you're hearing these interviews and you're hearing somebody being so direct, again, kind of going back to this idea. I know that one of the things about the clash is just kind of how hypocritical or contradictory they were, but to hear them talk about not pursuing money, but pursuing art and pursuing a message completely connected to the world that I was coming from. Right. Um, and it was a different type of message. It wasn't your yeah. parents' message. It wasn't them and their friends arguing about art. It wasn't, it was more like, it was visceral in a way that was probably different. It was. And at the same time, it was uh, like the blowback that they would always get, you know, for changing and trying all these different things and co the combination of uh, influences were something that they would always get a lot of shit for. I mean, now they're looked at back in this kind of legendary status, but that wasn't the case for so long. And that definitely has been the thing for me in my own films of trying to bring in different influences and see what I can do different from it and how do they combine and what, where is that clash in my own work? What kind of sparks comes out of that? So I, I always keep going back to different music of theirs to help guide me in terms of going, okay, this is something, um, this is my interest and that pushes me in these directions. Definitely in the idea that like with the, every film that I make, I always try to go in the opposite direction from yeah. the last film and try to do something really, really different and something. And I, I feel like that definitely comes from the Clash's influence. So when did you start actively pursuing film? I mean, how old were you? So I, I picked up, the, I mean, one of the amazing things was like, you know, I grew up really rich in a certain way, not financially, but there was always cameras and there was thing, the books. So there was so much to grab around. So I wound up picking up a camera around senior year of high school, Super 8 camera and shooting something and liking how it came out. And then when it came time to applying to schools, I applied to SUNY Purchase. I applied to a bunch of art schools and Cooper Union and I didn't get in, but I wound up being invited to the film department at SUNY Purchase and that what I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go here for one year and, uh, and then we'll see about reapplying to Cooper Union. But then immediately kind of going to purchase, especially that school at that time, asking, which were so good at asking of you, like, okay, do you have something to say? Do you have something you want to say? If not, get out of here. And the more that they asked of me, the more I got into film. And it was also the first time I was starting to see independent film. Like I, I just didn't really understand that there was a place in between Hollywood films and what my father did until I got to purchase and start seeing how Harley and Jarmish and all these people and oh, right. going yeah, yeah. like, oh, wow. Okay. There's a space right in between. And that, that's the direction I want to go. And how, what were the conversations like with your old man when you started pursuing it? You know, they weren't like, it's not supportive in the way like, oh, whatever you do, we like, um, but they responded to the work I was doing and even the conversations, even the films that I started making that they had issues with, they were real conversations that they took seriously. It wasn't this thing where they were going like, oh, you, ha you have it or you don't have it. Right. It was just like, okay, this, yeah, there's something here or I have issues with this. They were, I mean, I, I can't, like my parents just didn't lie about things like how they felt about things that's just not what they did so right. they were very honest about it but they took it seriously and i i also was confident about what i was making you know i started purchase i started gaining 
real confidence and feeling like, okay, this is whatever it's giving me is feeling like worth it. And it's asking more and more and exciting me. So you did a, a bunch of short films first? Yeah, exactly. And then um, I graduated with my senior film, which is called Kirk and Kerry. And uh, wound up trying to figure out how to make a, a feature film. And definitely New York City at that point was changing as well. And the, you know, financially, it was becoming a totally different type of city. But that was the next thing. And I, I really hadn't thought about what kind of feature films, but it was, it was very much kind of just seeing one foot in front of the other. And I was also coming out in this certain era of New York City films that everything felt possible. It felt so distant, different, so far away from anything about awards or money or even right. making money. It felt so far away. So yeah, so that 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 wasn't being taught yet. The business of films. No, no, there was nothing about business about film. There was no no conversation. And who about were that. you kind of looking towards? You know, when you started, like, what were the defining movies for you? Like that were coming out during that particular time. Anytime. I mean, like you you know, it's like I've been watching a lot of movies lately that I've never seen before. You know, and I know people talk a lot about the 70s or this or that, but but there's definitely movies that were definitely not on my radar at all. And I'm profoundly moved by them as, you know, even as I get older, it's like, it's like music. There's never, there's no end to the number of movies out there. And, you know, so many people land on the same dozen movies in terms of being influential. It just, but there's definitely, you must have movies that you, not unlike The Clash, that you saw and you were like, holy fuck. Oh yeah, I, I worked at this uh, movie theater where I was a projectionist and popcorn maker and everything on Van Damme Street called La Cinematograph, right? It was with me and Jonah Kaplan, my roommate, who you know, cause he made Stalker Guilt Syndrome. Oh my God, Jonah Kaplan made the Stalker Guilt Syndrome that I starred in. I don't know how he got me. I guess he was a fan of my comedy. Yeah, and, he, and when I saw it, I was like, oh, there's there's the guy from Sidewalk Cafe, you know, cause I'd walk by you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I told that to Jonah. I was like, yeah, I know, I recognize How's that him. guy doing? I think he's well, I hope he's well. I mean, we don't see each other that much, but you know, he works at Vice and doing Vice News. And he's won a bunch of Emmys and I think he's doing, he's got oh, a family. Really? Yeah. Well, that's good. He really, yeah. it worked out. He found a way. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, uh, and we worked together one summer at this movie theater that was an independent movie theater that we wound up having this retrospective of Cassavetes and each week somebody would come in to introduce the films. So, and it was always like, it was Ben Gazard one week, then Seema Cassell and Gina Rowlands, you know, like every week. And I did not know these movies. I did not, I just didn't know them. And uh, we had the keys too. So we could project these films after everybody was gone and just sit there. And so Joan and I and other people from my class and purchase would go and watch these films late into the night and just with my mouth open. Uh, obviously I know this is like, clearly a uh, an understood genius but for me the first time seeing those films and especially that time I mean I can't even underestimate the amount of the effect that it had to see that kind of level of truth in film yeah I just yeah I just rewatched um woman under the influence like a few weeks ago it just stays alive these films all stay stay alive that's a good way to describe it 
they stay alive. Yeah, and I, I mean, and again, I think Hal Ashby for me is somebody that I always go back to. Oh um, yeah, and and Altman is somebody like these are people that whose films play in a loop in my head. And then Those there's certain films good. like, yeah. you know, uh, I've been since a little, you know, maybe since I saw I saw King of Comedy in the theater when it came out. But that's a film that I go back to all the time, every couple of years, and go. How is this film possible? It just seems. Oh yeah. It just seems magic. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- there are films that definitely have had life-changing influences, and in that I keep thinking about, and never trying to go. Okay, can I make a film like that? But definitely have a. I want to be in conversation with them with the movies that I make. I want those films to answer and at least thank them for giving me what I feel like they've given to me in my life. Yeah, I was obsessed with McCabe and Mrs. Miller for two decades. Yeah, well, some of these films just seem impossible. But, I mean, for me, Popeye is the one that, like, I go back to Popeye all the time. It just seems like that type of commitment to that world, um, taking it that seriously and that playfully, like, that, that juxtaposition, again, going back to The Clash, like, that mixture for me is like everything that I want in, in the films that I make. Interesting. That's the one Popeye because of the, the commitment to the conceit of it. Cause it's, it's so fantastical and it's so much about what this world is. It's so, I, I, I recognize that world, even though it's completely not ours. Huh? Do you think that had something to do with your connection with, with comics? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I think so. I've been thinking about like one of the things that I would I would say has also been a huge influence to me on me has been radio. Like I would go to bed listening to old radio shows since I was a little kid. So yeah. that was a huge connection that goes kind of straight into comic books because that's kind of how, how many so many of those artists, those kind of golden age of the EC artists, were working from and inspired by and bring images even no matter how and those those radio shows are so so wild and so surreal yeah in their own ways right and it lends itself straight into so much of the radio that i still listen to that i think has just as much of an influence like joe frank or right um gene shepherd like that that mad magazine feel to things um that was the other thing that that was the other template for your brain Mad yeah, Magazine. That kind of a way of seeing the world. And that really is, like, I, I know I'm, I'm starting to sound insane about The Clash, but like, the Mad Magazine view of the world is very much kind of, I think, goes straight into Strummer's view. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Mad Magazine, if you were a Mad Magazine kid, it was just like, that. it was like the secret world. It was like, yeah. it was our entry into the way grownups think. Yeah. And it made everything that was popular just not cool at all. Like you're looking at cool kids, then they're not cool to you anymore. Like anything that's that seemed like was this thing that you're supposed to want is suddenly you had eyes on how ridiculous and how silly. Yeah, it planted the seeds of rebellion. Absolutely. But like, but like Popeye aesthetically. Like, you know, where you're at now, we should talk about the last couple of movies and the evolution of your particular point of view. But like, like I watched a Taika Waititi movie recently, The uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. 
and you know his sensibility is kind of amazing like and you know he directed the thor movie would you do a comic book movie if i could make part of the story like the uh that the inventors and creators got completely fucked and uncredited. Like if that, that could be part of the story, maybe like, I'd want that to be part of that. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's not, I don't know anything really about those films. That's not the films that gravitate towards. I do kind of know a lot about where that world comes from. And those stories of like the pain and like the, the immigrant story of, some of those artists and how the, the, the bitter Jews at the, at the heart yes, of the myth. Exactly. That's interesting to me. And I'd want that to be somehow addressed. Like, I don't know how you can not tell those stories without kind of seeing the kind of fucked up past that they're, they're based on. No one talks about that. An amazing past. Like these, these people were trying to uh, fight Hitler with their work with these superheroes um, in their own way. And they were coming from just complete poverty and there were the chances of becoming rich wasn't possible. So all that, this is to say like, no, like the superhero, I just don't really know enough. I did get to see Thor because I saw something about the advertising made me think of, oh, this is a person that likes Mad Magazine. And that's true. Like I found the, I found that film really wonderful. Like, and I found it very playful. Thor Ragnarok? Yeah. And I, and I don't think it's something that I could do, but I, I found it, I like that anarchy that it had, like, and he clearly was able to make the film personal and it feels like a, he has a strong point of view throughout. He's an interesting filmmaker, he's funny. Yeah, but I don't know, like that's not, I can say that I would know enough. And also I think with those superhero films, I feel like you better come correct and serve their fans. Like those fans know that world better than anybody. And, so, and they're paying a lot of money to be there. So why wouldn't you completely satisfy yeah. everything? And right. like, it's like if somebody made a film on the clash and I would, I would just look at what everything was wrong, you know, like yeah. I, I would know that. Maybe so you should make should... The, uh, the clash superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well yeah but i mean you know what i mean like they they should be spoken to on the level that they are at and that wouldn't be something i could even begin to dream of doing these well, are people nice. that live and breathe these comic books they, you don't want to piss them off they're 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 oh, ready no, to get pissed no. off dude yeah i and but i i couldn't say that that's like the thing that i'm i know much about or... right well now okay so the last few movies like when you talk about the evolution of because like uh, let's just it, it, like terry is that the that that sort of personal story about that kid and then the lovers is something the the lovers is sort of some sort of i don't know stylistically it's just very interesting contained tension of of a uh, of a strange evolution of a romance you know with these affairs and like you yeah. know but it it seems like there's the there's this, a real human story in there but there there seems to be parameters to it that were very specific that you were working within do you, you know what i mean it's completely contained no it was really i was i was using whatever limitations and wanted to use with the limitations of it going but it's a choice it was but it was also a way that i knew i could make that film like i wrote something to be small with few actors it's where i wanted to be and it's what i felt like what I needed to tell at that point. It's a great movie, and it's great. I mean, I love those those actors, and I yeah, hadn't seen Deborah too. Winger in a long time. And Tracy and I have become friends. I texted him yesterday about this movie because he's in it. Yeah, and I said yeah. he did a great job. But Good. 
but I the French exit I I, I really liked. But it, it it is, I guess I guess what I'm looking for is like you know, and we're talking about these art films and paintings and about all the things we're talking about, is that you have again this strange collection that seems to get bigger and bigger of humans, and there there's the the conceit to the movie is is sort of like a, it's it's almost like an uh an an, an upper class fable. Um, in in a way, and it's not like it necessarily. Uh, it's not that I've seen the story played out, but the you know the but but it seems familiar to me. But you have you know Michelle Pfeiffer who is spectacular, and I haven't seen her in a long time, and she's doing something she's never done before. And you got that kid uh, Hedges. What's his first name? Lucas, who's like kind of a brilliant guy, yeah. brilliant actor. But like, I guess my question is around it and how it kind of unfolds is, you know, why, why this particular movie? You go from the lovers, like what, what, what was the evolution from the lovers to this? What were you trying to challenge yourself with? Well, definitely, I liked that it was, took place, instead of creating the world in like, let's say in the lovers was inside this all, this middle class home right this was creating a world outside of the home these are people that are leaving their home and it's expanding and it's it was it was something that was intimidating and it was a place that i wanted to go to like i, I read and i don't overthink like i read patrick dewitt's novel french exit and and immediately it was on instinct that is like okay this is what i where where i want to go and then you kind of ask these questions of what why is this personal to me what is this connection as you're going along? But I think in retrospect, there's so much that I like about the kind of like take it or leave it or just fuck you attitude that Francis has that I would like to have in my own life that I wanted to be around, which was like, and I like the idea of telling a story, like not a quote unquote important story. It's not like a life and death story. It's life and eventual death and, and that, I relate to like it's not an underdog story it's not um it's not somebody overcoming great obstacles in their life but it is it i think something oh, a really warm funny world and interesting and um serious and somber and all these different tones that i wanted to be around and i felt like it could also bring me to get to work with the people that I wound up working with, that the people, the actors that would be attracted to, to doing this are exactly that type of actors that I really would like to, to get a chance to work with. And that began with like Michelle, you know, like that, that whole experience of then going to cast, going to Michelle and Tracy and Lucas and Imogen, like suddenly this is the thing that I dream of doing, you know? And so that's, I think I saw that as a possibility with a story. Did their interest um, enable you to do the movie? Oh, completely. Like, you know, I was working in both ways. I was working on getting the financing together and the financing would be together in terms of like who the cast wound up being. But then like there, there was definitely no chance of making the film. I, I, mean, I don't know if there's no chance, but it became very, very clear. Like this was the path of making this film and this was the right path. I, I was, because the money came from different places and came from abroad, right? It's a Canadian Irish co-production. I was able to have final cut on the film 
And so that was a thing that was on top of everything was like, okay, how do I make sure that this isn't the film that I want to make? Because there's a really different, very kind of on the surface reading, I think, of the of the book that you could have made that film, like, and it's, it's, which could have been a fine film, but it's not the film I wanted to see, you know, something maybe more, I don't know if it's whimsical or whatever, but less strange. And I really like the strangeness of this people on this world and, uh, and wanted to embrace that in my own way. Yeah. And I thought that that was sort of the amazing thing about it. And I guess the, the guy who wrote the book wrote the screenplay now, did yeah. you have, were you part of that process? Yeah. So Patrick, to a, he wrote Terry and for whatever reason, like Terry brought us very close, but then in the past bunch of years now, he's somebody that we, we speak every day, right? Like we just check in. A lot of times it's just the bullshit about random stuff, but yeah. sometimes it's more heavy, but we, for whatever reason, we really do kind of call each other every day. Somebody calls and checks in and I get to hear a little bit of what he's working on and I talk about what I'm working on, but it doesn't mean that I get to read sometimes before books are completely finished. And so I read this in a manuscript form and um, called them up and said, like, I'd like to make this into a film. And so that conversation of how can we turn this into a script happened even before the book was finished. And then he would come over to New York or wherever I was and we'd work together and I'd send him off on his way. And then that kind of work on the script kept on going on. Once Michelle came on and Lucas, like when we, we had, they, they, we really embraced the book as much as we could. And so we'd go through the book, certain things that were missing or certain things that we felt could have been clarified even more. We'd go back to Patrick and see if we can, you know, shift and that would that happened i think even sometimes during the shooting so you you make a movie where it's going to exist not unlike your your father's movies where you know they they are these singular things and you know whether they please everybody is not really the issue but do they stand on their own as as a as a piece of of as a finished piece of work but there's something that sneaks up on you about this movie. Like there's these questions where you're like, why are they all staying at this apartment? You know, and I don't know. And I don't know why. But, you know, at some point you made a decision. Patrick made a decision that nobody leaves the apartment. Everyone's going to be sleeping at this apartment at some point. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Do you? I, I in my own mind. And again, this is just my own answer. But I think that they find something it's the most interesting place to be, hmm. you know? I think that's what I think of these people. What's interesting about all these characters is that they all are walking their own paths. And I think that they feel like they're the only ones. Um, interesting. And then they find each other and they right. find, this is the place that I want to be. And it just seems like you just assume to be there. Um, that just that makes sense to me in an illogical way. It also seems like at the very base of it, like, yeah. But you're willing, but it's, you had that conversation. Yeah, definitely. I, I had that conversation, but also it wasn't questioned so much of going why it was also creating a situation where you'd, where these characters would want to be there. It was a place like it was where yeah. the activity was going. It's where, the connection was. Yeah, I understand that. And, and I, you know, and I, you know, it's not your job to ask why. This is just the way this is. Yeah. And then, you know, the questions are asked by others later. Yeah, but trying to balance these kind of things that are sane or insane is what we're doing all 
day long in our own lives, like things that just don't make sense. And how do we put this into one place, right? We go right. through our Instagram and we go, oh, that's horrible. That happened. Oh, that's amazing. There's a cat. This We go back and forth and it all becomes one. And we, we just bottle this up into the same place and we make sense of it. Right. And so I feel like that's the same thing with these films for me, at least. It just, they they have a logic to me and, and they have a logic also overall as a full thing where sometimes within a scene, and I especially feel this way with French exit, there's things that happen all throughout the film that's not necessarily connected to the very next thing you're going to see. But when the film is finished as a whole, if, if you've, if it's your type of thing, if you, if it's, you know, vibe with you, right. that you're going to see it as a full piece. And I know it's not for everybody. Like I, I understand that when I'm making these films that there's, that's not the, idea it's like i i want it to find its audience but i also know it's a really particular story and right you know like a filmmaker you're kind of half in the room all the time you're looking at story all the time you're like oh how could i take this in how could this be mine how can i you're not fully there to the way that when you're working with an actor and you see them surrounded by all these people in these clothes you know, on whatever time, and they become completely present, it seems impossible. It just seems like magic. It's just amazing to me how, and I, and it forced me to become completely present. It's the only time when I'm making a film where I'm not thinking about emails or anything. Oh yeah. When you go, on. when you say action, the, it's magic. It's the whole, it, it changes time. It does, but not all the time. Like I, and it doesn't happen sometimes, right? You're watching films or you're on the set and things are just dead and yeah. you're going, how can I get present and how can I be there? And when it does happen and when you see, especially with like the actors that I wound up working with French exit and it just happened every day, all the time where suddenly it's action and they are there in that moment. And then I'm in the edit room and I'm seeing all these choices that there's no way I could have seen that they're all making and they're all in tune with themselves and with each other. Like that's a great moment, right? It's the, it's the, it's what it's all about for me. (laughs) That's, that's it. It seems that's when you feel like, okay, with or without me, this film will walk on its own. And and it'd been so long since we'd seen Michelle. What what were what were those initial conversations about? Was she nervous? She says she was. I was very nervous. I mean, look, she had a, a completely different way of working than I had worked before. And I remember like Tracy Letts on a Lover. He called me on it right where he'd go. He'd ask me a question, and I'd answer him with a question. And he go, Oh, I know what you're doing. Like you 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 put a question to all my questions. And I was like, yeah, you know, cause then together we would work on figuring out the answer and that would become his uh-huh. answer. Uh-huh. And it seemed like a technique. It seemed like my technique. Right. And uh, Michelle wasn't playing with that at all. Like I would kind of, she'd ask me a question and I would ask her questions. What? Like, no, like, <laughs> what do you think? And, and uh, I realized that she wasn't asking me, like, what do I think so that she could think it? But what do I think about this? And like, she expected me to have thought of an, of something about it. And it forced me to go back to my home and to write out every question that I could think of 
and answer them for myself. And I always thought this was like a precious thing that you can't touch. You can't come up with these answers. This right. is supposed to be alive. Right. And it turns out that that for me was just me being kind of cowardly. Like I liked having these things to, to ask myself. Interesting. So it was, it was sort of like your idea of what that was, was a cop out. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that it was a, it was a, it was a, it was lazy. Right. But it was also a way to protect yourself from uh, uh, a sense of failure in a way that like, if, if you just like let it go, like, I'm not going to answer these questions. And then if something great happens, you're like amazing. But if you got the questions answered and you can't manifest, then you're like, ah, fuck. You're right. You know, and when I went to AFI, we had to take an acting class and I was getting directed by an, a, and I'm a terrible actor. Like I know, I know that I'm not an actor, but I was doing a scene and then I asked the the director something and they started bullshitting me. And I was like, oh shit, actors can see this vantage point. You can really see bullshit. It's so clear. (laughs) Like I have to remember to say, I don't know from here on, because that's what meant so much more to me than somebody just trying to wing it. And so that was like the way that would go. Like if I don't have that answer, I don't know. That's a good question. Blah, 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 blah. Let's go with this. But didn't mean, but ultimately that wound up me kind of not preparing in a way that I would like to, that I learned that, oh, I can without actually touching this thing that I thought was like a precious. Right. Uh, what Tracy calls pixie dust, you know, like, which is not real. He's like, you know, he, I remember him saying that about the, the, his connection with Deborah Winger, uh, you know, in, in the lovers and he's like, it's not pixie dust. It's like, it's what we do. It's work. Like that's, that's what acting is. And uh, yeah. it took me a bit to learn. He's one of those guys, man. He's like, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's got a work ethic. He's like, this is, the, this is the craft. We've been doing it all our lives. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we turn it on and off. We've, we've prepared and we work. Yeah. And that voice you're doing is the voice I hear in my head. Still, and so when I read Tracy's Small voice? Frank, yeah, I, when I saw, like, that's why he was Small Frank. I read and I heard this voice of this guy that kind of had a very, this is the way that I'm doing things. And all I could hear was his voice. So that was an easy call yeah. to go to Tracy. Hey, would you voice? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because your, your, your voice is already playing in my head. Yeah, I thought you did a great job, man. And, and it's Thank good you seeing so you again. Yeah, I hope to hope one of these days in person. Yeah, we can hang out again. And like, you've been healthy. Did you get the COVID or no? No, I didn't. And um, I'm trying not to. I was able to get my parents their first shot a couple weeks ago. And uh, they've come back. Yeah, so I mean, they'll be going for their second one pretty soon. So yeah, it's just, um, you know. Plugging along. Yeah, trying. Yeah. Trying. Well, it's great to see you, man. And I love the movie. And uh, it was nice talking with you. This means a lot to me. All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. See ya. Okay, that was nice, interesting film art talk. Aza's movie, uh, The French Exit, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges, opens in theaters across this country this Friday, April 2nd. Good movie. Great Pfeiffer movie. Great. Okay, now let's play some guitar. 
Boomer Lives. Monkey in the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Sammy is landed. 